Hi, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting from UBC's campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Sarah Unju, and we have a show of interviews for you today. We have two interviews, one with Sarah Rogers, who is the director of She Sells Seashells that is being put on by the United Players of Vancouver. And then we have an interview with Dr. Amy Parent, with whom I talked about her project that aims to revitalize the Niska language. And we also have some as in four shout outs for you. Those shoutouts I will likely be putting in between the two interviews so that, you know, you don't get tired of people speaking back and forth and then having to pay attention because the things that we're talking about are really interesting and I would really want you to pay attention because they're just genuinely, as I said, really interesting. I, I have to... um look up on synonyms for interesting on thesaurus because honestly you will hear in the interviews too i use that word a lot uh because generally the things that we talk about here on the show are really interesting (laughs) but anyways so to start off we are talking with Sarah Rogers. We're talking about, as I said, She Sells Seashells, which will be available to view online between January 22nd, so in two days, until February 14th, which is, as you might know, Valentine's Day. As you will hear in the interview, it sounds like a great play, so definitely check it out. I'm doing a review on it next week, so... You can watch it and then, you know, listen to my review and see how much you agree or disagree with me. Or if you want to hold on until you hear my review, you can also do that because it's available until mid-February. But I'm pretty sure Sarah will do a great job at convincing you to watch it because honestly, it's just, she's so passionate about it. And Dr. Amy Parent too, she's also really passionate about what she's talking about. Both Both of the interviews today are just really passionate interviews. I love it so much. So without further ado, enjoy. Uh, Hello, everyone. This is Sarah, and I'm here with Sarah Rogers, who is the director of She Sells Seashells, a play by the United Players of Vancouver. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Hi there. Happy to be here. Thank you. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about She Sells Seashells? It's a beautiful piece. It is all about Mary Anning, the very first female paleontologist, British character. Um, And she was born in 1799 Mm -hmm. and lived in Lyme, Dorset. And her father was a cabinet maker, but he had a passion for fossil hunting. It just so happens that we now know Lyme Dorset is known for its Jurassic findings, a big cliff, big, big cliff. And so what would happen over the years is they would have huge storms Mm -hmm. and the storms would bring up the underbelly of the ocean and all the Jurassic findings and fossils would literally dump on the cliffs of Lyme. (laughs) It was very dangerous work. Mm-hmm. So her father, and she was only a little girl, nine, ten years old, she would go out with him. And the best time to go out would be after a storm. Mm-hmm. It would also be the most dangerous time because the cliffs could collapse. Yeah. Her father actually died when she was ten years old. He had had a nasty fall on the cliff when mm-hmm. he was out by himself. And he caught tuberculosis because mm-hmm. he laid he, he was it was hours and hours before he was found and so he never fully recovered from that fall and he passed away a year later at the age of 11 she found a skull oh. of what would later be named an ichthyosaurus 
So she found a dinosaur, a sea monster dinosaur. And uh, can you imagine, at 11 years old, she found the massive skull. Nobody would believe her. And they kept saying it's a crocodile. Mm -hmm. But eventually, months and months later, she found the rest of the vertebrae. So she found all of the rest of the creature. And it was like 30-odd vertebrae. Yeah. And massive in length. And at that point, even the geological society and the paleontologists had to take her seriously. Mm-hmm. The play, so the play is, uh, was written two years ago for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, okay. It's a one act, there's three actors, and it takes us through this delightful, incredible story of this tenacious young woman who went on to become a top paleontologist. And her findings are scattered throughout British museums, universities and colleges today mm-hmm. that's that's such a that's such a i don't know if cool is the right word to use right now but such a cool story <laughs> it is sounds really really interesting and so my question to you now is why did you say yes to the project when you got offered to be the director what about this play that made you want to bring it to life Lovely question. I have mad love, first of all, for United Players. Mm -hmm. United Players, I refer to as a semi-professional company. Mm -hmm. They are a community-based company, and yet they are so ambitious. They do such incredible projects. They launch very interesting seasons Mm -hmm. year after year. Andre Karras has been at the helm for many, many, many years, and she has just retired and Toth Marshall, the incoming, is carrying on the torch beautifully. Mm-hmm. He has chosen an absolutely wonderful season. And he offered up this play to me, and I didn't know it. He's very good friends with the playwright, Helen Eastman, mm-hmm. who lives in England. And as soon as I read the piece, I jumped on it and said, yes, yes, please. It's a gem of a play. It's got a beautiful theatricality to it. It's very charming. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful feminist story in lots of ways of this young woman and her journey. But it's also presented in a very music hall style. So there's there's a vaudeville number in it. There's a waltz. There are dances and singing. It's jam-packed with theatricality and humor. So I just love the writing. Mm-hmm. It's delightful, delightful piece. That sounds, it just sounds really good um, already. I'm really excited to watch it. And so all of the performances for this play are online. And did you know this going into the rehearsals? Oh, gosh, it's been such a ride. So, again, I just applaud United Players for moving forward mm-hmm. because we started our rehearsals with the new restrictions. Oh, okay. Theaters, theaters closed. Yeah. So the theater closed, and as soon as that new restriction came in and the theater shut down again, I was so worried that this beautiful project would be canceled. And God bless United Players for their optimism <laughs> and they said we're we're moving forward we're going to rehearse we're going to be hopeful that by the time january 22nd comes around the theaters will be open again mm-hmm. but if not they have been filming mm-hmm. their productions <clears throat> so the first two productions were filmed and we are going to be filming ours as well mm-hmm. and I have to tell you, I'm so crazy excited about this. I watched The Red Priest, which was the second show. Yes. And was gobsmacked at the quality of filming. I mm-hmm. felt like I was watching a national theater offering. Okay. So they have hired this incredible videographer. Mm-hmm. And he uses three cameras. Two of them are locked. And one... He pans, moves, and does close-ups. Okay. And then 
he edits it all as well. So you've got wide shots, you've got close-ups, you've got moving, and the edits are frequent. Mm -hmm. The quality of the cameras as well is through the roof. So for a community player, like a community-based company yeah. to have this level, as soon as my actors and I got the news that we would not be having a live audience because, as we all know, the lockdown has been extended, mm -hmm. we then, of course, were very curious to look at the quality and check out the offering of the previous play, and we could not get over it. Mm -hmm. So we're our opening our opening what would be our preview our preview day on uh, this coming Thursday is our film shoot <laughs> so we're all very excited now that we're making a movie and mm. the opening night will be the launch of that film and patrons and uh Every, every, everywhere across the globe, yeah. <laughs> not just in Vancouver, but also in England, will be able to um, purchase and watch the, the offering of uh, our lovely play. And it's so theatrical and so beautiful. I think all the singing and dancing is actually going to really lend itself mm -hmm. to making a really, really great, uh, sweet little movie. Yeah, uh, that sounds exciting. Also, I feel like one thing that could good one good thing that could come out of you know not having in-person performances is that um people basically all around the world can watch your performance that you've been doing in vancouver so if you have family or friends abroad who can't just fly into vancouver for a performance it's just it's a great opp opportunity it's so true and you know all these years that i've been creating theater it's it's the the cycle of birth and death mm -hmm. because we really don't film our work. Yeah. And in, in theater, we have archivals and an archival happens with literally a camera on a tripod still at the back of the theater. <laughs> so the quality is never great. The sound is never great. Yeah. Uh, you always feel like it's a little grainy because you've got stage lights on. We're able to also work with the lighting designer now and the camera mm -hmm. operator, videographer, to stylize and design the lights, particularly for the camera. Oh, so the, so the quality on all levels. I'm going to, for the first time, have a really beautiful video of one of my plays. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited about this, and I'm thinking maybe this is going to be the future that we're going to move into into more of this this videography because as theater practitioners we're all learning about it now we're yeah. being forced to learn yeah <laughs> it's a good thing I think so too yeah it's definitely I feel like theater is such a great form of art but it's not as accessible as it should be really so I feel like with this new as you said getting used to and learning doing it you know like filming it and doing it online um, it is becoming more accessible, which is really exciting. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So you mentioned that you started rehearsals with the new restrictions. And I, as I said, before we started recording, I mentioned to Sarah that I kind of stalked her Instagram a little bit. And so I saw <laughs> some pictures from other rehearsals that are also during COVID times. And so what I'm wondering is... Compared to those rehearsals, um, were these ones any difference because there were new restrictions or have you just gotten used to, you know, this new normal, I guess? Such a great question. Oh my goodness. It is oh, such a different journey creating theater <laughs> during COVID. It has been fascinating. I've been very impressed with United Players mm -hmm. and the procedures that they had in place. Uh, in fact, it gave myself and my stage management team, my three actors, my assistant director, mm -hmm. confidence to move forward. And we felt safe. We are all in masks all the time. We check in at the door, putting our names every single morning and the time that we've come in and we sanitize. My assistant stage manager spends most of his time, lovely Aaron Duke, Studio 58 grad, 
cleaning and wiping down the chairs <laughs> and wiping down the table and sanitizing everything everybody touches. Very quickly, I worked with staging six feet apart. Mm-hmm. So that's how we started. And the actors are fully masked. They sanitize everything. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, we also realized, because of course we have props, and the props are these beautiful fossils, mm-hmm. which, by the way, United Players bought this elderly gentleman's fossil collection. Oh, wow. So when people watch the movie, <laughs> or the, when they see it, the stones and the rocks and the ammonites and, and all the fossils that we refer to, they're real. Oh, wow. They're the real thing. So there's actual fossils inside all of the rocks and all the stones that we're using. Yeah. That's been amazing. So yeah. we want to do a close-up <laughs> at some point. <laughs> um, but what we discovered, too, is that we can't be passing the props, and they can't share props. Yeah. So that was a huge, oh, my goodness, that was massive for us and for me as a director and the choreographer. Mm-hmm. The choreographer wanted with their hats and canes and our vaudeville act. Originally, she wanted them to toss the canes, and we suddenly realized they can't toss the canes. Yeah. So that's how that's how uber careful we're being. That's how vigilant we are being. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, they're clean. Their hands are sanitized. The canes are sanitized. We know we had big discussions about it because we knew that really we felt that we could safely do it, yeah. but we chose we chose not to. We mm-hmm. chose to just be really vigilant and have every actor have their own props and only touch their own props. Yeah. Now, what we've decided to do for the filming, which has also been a gift, is that the actors are going for COVID testing Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. and they are going to get the results in time for Thursday morning, our shoot day, and they will be unmasked just mm-hmm. as we uh, we are as if we were on a film set, because mm-hmm. we are on a film set. Yeah. And we are just doing that one one film. So that's also been the gift of this in lots of ways is that we do get to film it once through, unmasked. Everybody will be tested and they'll isolate before the filming so everybody can feel safe and confident. And it allows us to get a little bit closer as well so that, because I staged everything very, very spaced out mm-hmm. and it will allow them to... Um, get a little closer as well. So that's, that's been really wonderful. And we're all looking forward to that, that morning as well. That's going to be amazing. And I, and, and for me, I've seen the actors, they wear the cloth masks. Mm-hmm. We also did purchase some clear masks mm-hmm. just so that we could do a couple of run throughs before shooting where I could see their faces. <laughs> yeah, that's important. <laughs> And so you're filming at the Jericho Arts Center, right? Yes, that's so correct. It'll it'll still have the the I guess the air of theater. I feel like because something great about the United Players is that um, they have their plays at Jericho Arts Center, which is such a cozy space, and it really gives you that feeling of theater community. I agree, and we have a beautiful design. Brian Ball is our set designer, and I've worked with him many times at. Theater Under the Stars and for other productions at United Players as well. And uh, he is a beautiful artist, painter. He's given us a really gorgeous set. It's full of surprises Mm -hmm. and transformations. And it's going to work very, very well on film. And I'm uh, very excited to, as you say, what's beautiful about this piece and the videographer is he does a big wide shot. So you still got that sense of seeing it as a, a stage piece, as a set design, mm-hmm. but we can go in for close-ups throughout it as well. So it will still feel like a cozy, intimate theater offering. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so um, you've done a good amount of acting before you started directing. So what I'm wondering is... Um, do you think you would have wanted to act during these COVID times or do you think you're, you know, happy with directing because they're so different? So I feel like asking 
uh, a question of like, oh, do you prefer acting or directing is kind of, you know, doesn't make that much sense because they both have different aspects of, you know, that makes you like them. But I feel like they could be really different, especially during these times with oh, the restrictions. Absolutely. So I, absolutely. I'm just wondering, would As you a... have wanted to act right now or? I have. Well, oh. I have. So it's a, such a great question. I love that you've tapped into this. COVID has got me back into film and TV and acting. Oh, so I was actually starting to do it a year before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. A lovely theater practitioner and now agent, Josh Drebbit, is a very good friend of mine. And I directed him for many years in many shows. And he is was for many years a co-producer with Ryan Beale mm -hmm. for the Main Street Theater. And he moved into being an agent um, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And we went out for beers one night mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> and I said, hey, I'm thinking about, about acting again. And so he said, join my agency. Mm -hmm. And I've done a few, so I've done a few TV gigs. I've, uh, I'm on Riverdale. I'm on this new uh, TV series called Woke on oh, Hulu, God. but really, really cool, really fantastic series. And I've done a couple of films. And during COVID, I was cast in a Hallmark-like film, mm -hmm. kind of a movie of the week, and it was being filmed in Kelowna. Mm -hmm. And so I have been on a film set and went down to Kelowna to shoot this for a few days. And uh, so that's been a great gift for me. With the closing down of theaters, I've actually had the time to audition yeah. and focus and do more self-tapes. And I feel like I'm crossing my fingers and praying to the, the fairy theater gods because really my dream is to do both. Yeah. And I feel like I'm moving into it. So I feel like I had this big acting career I exploded as a director and then everybody just wanted to hire me as a director and I felt slightly insulted. Nobody wanted to see me <laughs> act anymore. And I saw so I had a big break from acting and I feel like, oh my goodness, if I could do a little bit of directing and a little bit of acting for each season, mm -hmm. how wonderful. And it also really gives room for the emerging directors that are coming up to take contracts yeah. as they, as they should. You know, I have so many lovely younger emerging directors that are coming up um, that I really love their work and support them. And there's only so much work for us to go around. So if I can make my living mm -hmm. in other areas as well, that's, that is good for the whole community and, yeah. and climate as well. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, I, you put it really beautifully. I don't, there's not much I can say about it. Um, but yeah. So before we go, is there anything you would like to say or mention to the people who are listening? Oh, thank you. I just would like to share my cast, mm -hmm. uh, my talented cast with everyone. If there are artists that people may know, um, They are three Studio 58 grads. Uh, Krista is playing our Mary Annie. Mm -hmm. And um, we've got Hannah Pearson playing Performer A and Isaac Lee, Performer B. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that they are all three grads from Studio 58. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they're, and they're just, is a wonderful, of course, training ground. Um, and so they're just doing beautiful, beautiful work for me. And I also have this amazing design team. I mentioned Brian Ball. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also have, um, Kate Carr, terrific costume designer who I love working with for period pieces, particularly. Mm -hmm. And Chris King He's a well-known musical director in Vancouver. Yeah. He's composing for me. So the Ooh. secret is going to be out because people don't realize that he is a phenomenal composer. He works so much as an MD, 
that uh, his season fills up as a musical director. But I, I said to him, well, the secret's out now. You're going to start getting hired as a designer and yeah. a composer. His composition is exquisite and it is quite filmic. So it's oh. going to work beautifully. And I also have Brad Treneman, set designer, and he is uh, fantastic. Uh, sorry, lighting designer. Mm-hmm. He's a beautiful lighting designer and uh, works lots in Vancouver. And so he's got some lush, exquisite lighting for us as well. Yeah. I hope I've, rem- I hope I've remembered everybody. Cameron Pearson is my assistant director. Incredibly mm-hmm. uh, brilliant artist who's uh, contributed hugely. Mariana Munoz um, and Aaron Duke are my stage management team, and they're an incredible duo. So we, we've so I just feel I feel utterly spoiled, <laughs> and I've been picking myself to be sitting in a theater during this time yeah. and being able to collaborate and be able to turn and see designers, even though they're a million miles away from me, <laughs> and connect and collaborate and talk. We all feel so blessed, and we're really excited to share the work with everyone. Yes, that's... Thank you so much. It sounds really exciting and also interesting, and I hope uh, everyone who's listening can check it out. I for sure am. Well, I'm going to be doing that. Wow, I cannot speak. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. It was lovely talking to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great. <laughs> Are you a Canadian employer seeking to hire a post-secondary student this month for a winter paid placement? Will this student be employed in a meaningful paid work environment in an IT or IT-related position or in business development, digital marketing, or technical sales? Are you interested in receiving a subsidy of between five dollars and $7,000 to help you put a post-secondary student to work for you? If you answered yes to these questions, you will want to contact the Information and Communications Technology Council and ask about the Work Integrated Learning Program. Not only can they help subsidize a student hire, but they can also help you find the right match for your firm. To learn more, email info at ictc-ctic.ca and ask about the Work Integrated Learning Program. That email again is info at ictc-ctic.ca. Hurry. To qualify, applications must be approved before the student starts work. This project is funded in part by the Government of Canada's Student Work Placement Program. Vancouver Reloaded, playing your favorite tunes and mouth-humping your ear holes full of voice talk. Yeah, we do that. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating interview. Yes, I looked that up. And thesaurus. I do know, I mean, I know what fascinating means. I just don't think it really means the same as interesting but anyways okay on to our shout outs our first shout out goes to trio of trios this is the west coast chamber music's first concert in 2021 and it features trios for piano violin and cello by hayden shostakovich and heather schmidt performed by angela cavadas alex kramer Holly Duff, and Alan Crane. It's going to be available to view from Friday, January 22nd at 5 p.m., which is, again, in two days, same as She Sells Seashells, until Monday, January 25th, midnight. So, like, technically not midnight, 11.59, but, you know, midnight. Anyways, (laughs) so ticket holders will be receiving an email link to access the performance Tickets are $17 and you can buy them at westcoastchambermusic.com. You can also phone them for more information. Their number is 604-879-9959. If you like classical music, definitely check it out. I'm really looking forward to it. I will be doing a review, I guess, kind of talking about it on our upcoming show next week and my parents love classical music so I will likely be tuning in to the concert with them 
So, you know, it's a nice family activity. Again, that's Trio of Trios from January 22nd at 5pm until 25th midnight. Tickets are $17 and you can buy them at westcoastchambermusic.com. Again, that is westcoastchambermusic.com. On to our next shout out. So, the Polygon... If you don't know, it's a gallery located in North Vancouver. They are open. You can still visit. But they've been having um, really great online events. And today, actually, after the show at 6 6 p.m., they're having a creator's talk. So it works out perfectly. You know, you can listen to our show finish that up and then hop onto the Polygon's creator talk. It will it's featuring Andrea Sanchez Ibarola. I probably pronounced that wrong. Andrea Sanchez Ibarola. I hope so. Anyways, she will be talking about her exhibition Miradas Alternas. It will be around 30 minutes, so you can even join in while you're cooking, you know? Not that long. Also, there will be a Q&A afterwards, so if you have any questions about anything she mentions in her talk, you'll have the chance to ask them, which is great. You can become a member of the Polygon, join the talk, and get more information both about this creator's talk and also their upcoming events uh, at thepolygon.ca. That is the, as in T-H-E, P-O-L-Y-G-O-N dot C-A, the polygon dot C-A. So our third shut out, shut, oh my god. (laughs) Our third shut out is for Stride Burnaby Arts Festival. This festival started on the 16th, but don't worry, it's not ending anytime soon. It's going on until the 30th. So what is Stride? It's a part arts festival, part community catalyst, and all fun to celebrate Burnaby's art and soul. It offers educational, entertaining, and provocative virtual programs, plus safe you know, quote-unquote, in real-life experience that are all designed to renew our connections with the arts and with each other. You can attend a virtual live music concert, an artist studio tour, participate in a workshop, and make some art of your own. Explore the Stride Poetry Zone before you visit the numerous local businesses exhibiting Burnaby-made art. You can get more information on Stride, meet the artists in the profile section, and check out the map to schedule your own Stride action plan at wearebernaby.com. That is, again, the Stride Burnaby Arts Festival. It will be going on until January 30th, 2021, and you can get more information on wearebernaby.com. So, last but not least, Vancouver Opera. You may have heard of it if you follow the arts in Vancouver or if you have been listening to our episodes. We've done two reviews of their performances so far. Last week we had a review of Amal and the Night Visitors and then last term we had a review of La Voix Humaine. So, but did you know that Vancouver Opera has a podcast called Offstage? Their first episode of 2021 features Grammy Award-winning Canadian baritone Brett Polegato. I really have no idea if I pronounce that right. Wow, I'm having a lot of difficulty with pronunciations today. Damn. Okay, this episode, so the first episode of 2021 came out on January 13th, and their next episode will be releasing on February 10th. So it's once a month, nice and relaxed. You can listen to this episode and all of their past episodes and all of the upcoming ones, well, when they come out <laughs> at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. That is again vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. Also, there are extra features and content in that that exact, you know, website including Brett's Spotify listening favorites and the host Les Les it's L E S I'm not sure if I should be pronouncing it in French or in English anyways they're the host's pick of the week so definitely worth checking out if you like podcasts and if you like opera this is perfect for you check it out at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage 
Well, that's all of our shoutouts, so... Discorder, that free magazine from CITR, has been documenting the best in music, arts, and culture since 1983. Let's see what one man of prestige has to say about Discorder. What up, though? This is Big Snoop Dogg, and I fucks with Discorder magazine. How about that? <laughs> Smokey every day. Pick up a copy around Vancouver or f*** with Discorder online at discorder.ca. We don't need to tell you that Vancouver has a housing problem. Mass evictions. Mass evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. It's time to move on to our second interview of the day with Dr. Amy Parent. We talk about her project, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, that you will be hearing very shortly. And I would like to give a disclaimer and kind of apologize if there are any problems with the audio. I tried to edit it as much as I could, but the thing with the station being closed due to COVID is that we can't use the studios to record interviews. So we do them online through, you know, video chat. And well, first of all, my Wi-Fi sucks. So there are sometimes connectivity issues, but I try to, you know, do my best. And secondly, there there might be some like audio issues, some lagging and stuff like that. So I apologize. It's not like it might sound like there are a lot of problems with the interview, although there isn't. It's just maybe small things that you might not even realize. But like I listened back to it multiple times. So I realized them like just very fast and I don't know maybe they just stand out to me and maybe they won't stand out to you so I just want to give a disclaimer just in case also important to mention I don't know if you noticed in Sarah's interview uh, but my brain kind of decided it didn't want to process English anymore as I am not you know experiencing it every day now until well until I get back to Vancouver so as you just witnessed, there are some pronunciation and grammatical mistakes that I do. This, you know, I feel like we've gotten used to this by now, right? I hope. Anyways, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's still a great interview. Please listen to it. It's wonderful. Dr. Amy Parent's so passionate about what she's talking about. Just want to give a disclaimer. Enjoy. Hi everyone, today I'm here with Dr. Amy Parent, who is an assistant professor here at UBC. She's a member of the Niska Nation, and we will be talking about her project RNL, which stands for Raising Niska Language, Sovereignty, and Land-Based Education Through Traditional Carving Knowledge. Hi Amy, thank you for being here. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you today. Thank you so much. To start off, would you like to tell us about your project, kind of what the main purpose is and how you aim to achieve this purpose? Sure. So as you indicated, the title of the project is Raising Niska Language, Cultural Sovereignty and Land-Based Education with Traditional Carving Knowledge. So I am a member of the Niska Nation on my mother's side. I come from the House of Nis Joel. I belong to the Ganada Frog Clan and my Niska name is Noxjawit, Noxjawit Niska Ni. And that means um, mother of the Raven Warrior Chief. And I've been involved uh, with a number of language revitalization initiatives and research projects with my community since I began learning my language six years ago. It was six years ago that we uh, had the opportunity to begin learning our language when it was brought out of um, our motherlands in the Nass Valley to Vancouver for the first time. So since that time, uh, I've just, like I said, been engaged in a number of different projects. Um, but this project in particular actually came about really unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. I had made a, a quick trip uh, to visit my, my house chief and to talk with him about some archival information I had found in our nation's archives and was really just asking him about permission on some, some of the protocols around some of the knowledge that I had found. And I had indicated that it was for a, another shirt grant that I had. 
And so he stopped me mid-sentence and he said, oh, he's like, he's like, you have a grant? He's like, you think that can help us raise our house pool? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, um, this, you know, this grant has already been targeted, um, but, you know, I'm happy to, you know, look for additional funding. Like, what do we need? And, you know, at, at that point, we had been very fortunate to have our uh, a memorial pool carved. Mm-hmm. Uh, we needed some additional funding for uh, the steel reinforcements of it. But this pool in particular is quite interesting unique uh, in that it is a replica pole of an original pole that was stolen by Marius Barbeau in 1929 uh, from our ancient village of Angida. And so uh, he stole it. Uh, it was brought with the permission of, uh, from the government of Canada to Scotland to the National Museum of Edinburgh, where it now still um, is standing. But uh, in the meantime, our house has since had, had the replica pole carved, and we're going to have a, um, a feast to, uh, to raise the pole. And so that was sort of a, a bit of the context of why he was asking for some additional funding. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Vancouver, and I began working on a Shirk, uh, exploration, uh, Shirk, and, Shirk Frontiers uh, Exploration Grant. And uh, over a six-month period, we did receive the, the funding. By, by, that, by that point, uh, one of the things that he had not known at the time when he asked was that our um, hereditary um, chiefs and matriarchs and a number of people from our village government had gotten together and had put forward the, the rest of the funding that we needed so we could have our feast and raise our bowl on time. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to do that, and it was a historic moment for us um, in our village because that was the first time we had raised a pole of this nature in over 150 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the funding came through, we'd already raised this pole. Um, and so in addition to that, the grant also looked at other aspects. And so uh, it was a carving of a new pole. Uh, it's also, um, I got really excited about this idea of working with virtual reality technology yeah. uh, with language and um, integrating that with some of the place-based knowledge that we have or some of our land-based knowledge as well as tracing sort of the process of the poles carving with some of that virtual reality technology. Um, and then the final piece, I had to just pull up my own notes here, um, <laughs> without actually just going back to Scotland and um, and, reach, and making efforts with her house yeah. uh, as an allegation to go to Scotland and to let them know that we wanted our house pulled back. So those are the three pieces. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, because we've already raised a poll, I went back to my chief. I said, well, what, we, what do we do with this funding? Mm-hmm. And he said, he's like, well, he goes, nobody else has ri- nobody else in our village has raised a poll. And so there's other houses that need funding. So we're just going to give the funding to them. And mm-hmm. so that's what we're doing right now. Uh, the next house um, has come forward uh, through our hereditary process of consultation. Uh, we, we've determined who the next house will be. And the carving for that poll will begin uh, in hopefully June of uh, 2021, as well some of the virtual reality components. Uh, if we can, if I can travel uh, to the NAS, uh, <laughs> yeah. the COVID restrictions right now. And then the, the final component, which is going to Scotland to repatriate the poll, uh, we're hoping to do that in 2022, just to make sure that um, everybody's safe to travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And talking about the the polls, so the, the pr- process of repatriating the poll, um, is that starting um, in 2022 or is it a long process? Have you already started on that? What, kind, what, what does that look like for you? The process has already started. Um, it's it's it started since we received news that we received the funding. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing with the media right now has been intentional in terms of trying to promote that awareness to Canadian society uh, in order to receive support, uh, both from uh, Canadian citizens mm-hmm. but also from government officials. Uh, it's our intent when we get to Scotland to um, have a very strong case for the repatriation of our poll. So that's one piece of it. Um, next next week, I'm going into a meeting with our hereditary chiefs and matriarchs to talk about our strategy. But we've been really fortunate uh, so far with some of the media support that we have received uh, to have been contacted by a number of key people that really want to work with us. Mm-hmm. So we have um, we were contacted by the member of parliament for the Skeena Bulkley Valley riding, uh, which is. Um, that riding is on our territories. Mm-hmm. So he offered his support uh, politically to us in terms of that repatriation process. Uh, somehow, uh, the Vancouver Sun article uh, that we did uh, reached Scotland, and uh, there was an Anglican minister uh, in Edinburgh who also contacted us. And so he's offering the support of the Anglican Church 
to help us campaign if needed, uh, as well as uh, to host us uh, in his rectory. Um, so we're, you know, we've had some really positive uh, feedback from people, other people that just know somebody in Scotland and saying, <laughs> you know, we should connect you. Um, and most recently, I've been connected um, kind of inadvertently with the Scottish Centre for Scottish Studies at, at mm -hmm. SFU, which is my former university. And so now I've been invited to do a conference uh, in Scotland on colonialism, which is also one of my intentions uh, prior to going, is yeah. actually uh, doing some key, key key presentations to different university audiences to make them aware and also gather more support and allyship. Yeah, that's great. That sounds great. Yeah, I really, I really hope everything works out with the... Uh, your your talk at um, Scotland. So going back to the other element of this project, which is virtual reality, have you always worked with virtual reality? Is that something you're familiar with, or how did you uh, think about using VR for this? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, it was another one of these random synchronistic moments that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working around the clock one weekend on the second stage of the grant proposal. And I thought I was alone on campus and I went to our, our staff coffee room and I ran into somebody and I thought, oh my God, I'm not alone here. And I didn't know uh, my colleague very well, but we started talking around the coffee machine as we were waiting for our coffees. Mm -hmm. And she started telling me that she specialized in virtual reality technology and and she said that some of the recent studies that are coming out of china around language second language acquisition has, has been showing some incredibly amazing results in terms mm -hmm. of supporting and people's learning uh because as you know virtual reality reality creates a total immersive learning experience yeah. and look at sort of the neuro um neurobiology of the brain um it is also showing that it's really um it taps into people's empathetic um mm -hmm. connection and so it in a lot of ways uh supports learning processes in a, a much smoother way so that got me thinking and, and i thought well you know what i have a paragraph left in this proposal i'm going to write this in here and, and you know there hasn't been that much research in canada for indigenous language revitalization and vr yeah uh I'm going to write this in there and just see what we can do with that. So, yeah, we're very fortunate to have received the funding. And since that time, I've been putting myself in virtual reality school. Mm -hmm. So there is an organization here in Vancouver called the Indigenous Matrix 4 Lab. You might be familiar with them. Uh, it's uh, run by, uh, oh, gosh, her name just slipped. But C. Swice and Loretta Todd. Loretta Todd. Okay. Um, yeah, they have this amazing um, nonprofit organization that supports virtual reality technology uh, in terms of supporting relationships with Indigenous communities and bringing mm -hmm. it to them. So they've been offering some pretty amazing workshops, and so I've been taking those. And then through through this organization, I've been connecting with uh, some phenomenal Indigenous VR artists across Canada because they mm -hmm. are the ones who are really breaking trail with this technology. And they've been really helpful in terms of just supporting me and, and teaching me and mentoring me. Uh, realistically, I'll never be the person that's, you know, designing the virtual reality pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just need to have a grasp of, you know, sort of what what's possible in terms of managing a project. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, I'm also really curious, and this is where, like, a lot of the work from the IMB4 lab has been helpful for me, is thinking about how do we put this technology in the hands of our youth, right? Yeah. And if they're learning your language and if they're taking, you know, like, NISCA language classes in school, which some of them are in our territory, then how can we support them to be creative with this technology and to... Um, shoot their own VR films that have meaning in our language and connections to land and place. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And so I read that for the VR, it will feature interviews with NISCA speakers. And so I was wondering how you're finding slash choosing the speakers that will be featured in this um, VR feature. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good question. Um, at this point, it's always um, a lot of the work that we do with Indigenous methodologies and some of the cultural teachings uh, that I carry from our, my nation is that we always keep this an open-door process mm -hmm. and we invite anybody uh, that is interested. Um, we, as part of this project, we do have, um, we're following our traditional hereditary protocols. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of our quote-unquote research advisory committee is comprised of um, some of our key matriarchs and chiefs from our village. 
um, who are our language speakers. So um, it'll be under their guidance as well as some of the work I'm doing with our curriculum committee, which is comprised of NISCA language speakers who are knowledge holders, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who will also um, provide direction on, on folks. But basically, it's anybody who would like to participate, speaks the language, uh, is comfortable sharing uh, publicly permissible teachings um, that can be used uh, with the VR technology. Um, Obviously, our first focus is within the NISCA language to translate some of these films, but then um, we're also hoping to um, use them in a different way, uh, and they might be a slightly different film, but also uh, use some of these films and translate them into other languages for our ecotourism purposes. Okay, that's, that's great to hear. And so I was I was looking through your website, which is very pretty, by the way, I have to say, um, also really easy to manage. And I read that you recently produced a film series with Coast Salish knowledge holders and leaders called Critical Understandings of Land and Water, Unsettling Place at Simon Fraser University which you mentioned is your um, old school. So I was hoping if you could tell us a little bit about this series, um, where people can watch them if, you're, if they're interested. Yeah, for sure. So this, again, with everything I do, <laughs> it's always an emergent process. Um, this one actually came out of a need that I saw uh, while I was teaching at Simon Fraser University in their teacher education program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lead Indigenous faculty for the development of a new course, uh, which would extend the teacher education program, but it was also uh, structured in a way that wasn't friendly to Indigenous pedagogies. And so this particular course uh, brought together 400 students into a lecture theatre. And so for me, as an Indigenous prof, this would have been my first time teaching in such a large format. And Mm -hmm. um, for us, in terms of our pedagogies, it's actually quite relational, right? It's quite experiential. And so to be sort of um, a speaker at, you know, at the bottom of the stage in a large lecture theater um, wasn't congruent with my teaching uh, pedagogies. But in addition to that, I was also um, collaborating on the course with about 13 other um, faculty. It was mm-hmm. an interdisciplinary course, uh, which was an amazing professional experience, but also one that required us after we were in these large in this large lecture hall uh, giving um, these integrated lectures to then break out into these smaller groups and have our own, uh, we call them professional learning communities of 36 students. Mm-hmm. And so the way the schedule had happened was that uh, we were going to focus our first week on Indigenous pedagogies and connections to land. And that's when I had a number of my non-Indigenous colleagues coming up to me and expressing their fear and their hesitation with teaching um, Indigenous content. You know, so for example, I had um, one of my colleagues was new from the United States, and uh, his specialization was in like special uh, in, in special education, mm-hmm. right? So no way he had the knowledge or the context to talk about Indigenous uh, education here. Yeah, and not that he wasn't willing to learn, um, but to you know, it's quite a it would be quite a formidable process for him to engage with in such a short period of time. Yeah. So that made me think, okay, I need to create some type of a, a sustainable online or a sustainable film for people to watch and to be able to use and then create some guided questions from that. And so I was really lucky to partner with the Center for Educational Excellence at SFU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I began to do what initially was three um, films with the Tsleil-Waututh, the Skohomish, and Musqueam, yeah. Musqueam uh, uh, which were the three campuses that the SFU uh, Burnaby campus occupies, right? Mm-hmm. And after our first film uh, with the Squamish Nation, um, we realized that you know we needed to expand to all three university campuses, right? Because mm-hmm. the SFU was on, in Surrey as well as downtown, so that extended us to a number of different Coast Salish communities. But in addition to that, uh, it, we, I also quickly realized that this film series would be helpful for the entire SFU community as well as others, um, other other institutions and other faculty and students. So it, it ended up becoming like, well, I know we're in our third year now, but it was a two-year process to film 13 different films. Mm-hmm. With and so you can find that information on uh, amyparent.ca under my film section. So that's amyparent, A-M-Y. And then parent, just like mom and dad, P-A-R-E-N-T dot C-A. And so we've recently released the montage of the entire film series, which shows a collection of different stories uh, through more of a collective understanding of Coast Salish territories uh, from 
the beginning of time shared through different um, highly respected Coast Salish knowledge holders and political leaders um, to perhaps uh, provide a different story than what most Canadians are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And a part of this uh, film series is also to counteract and disrupt the glorified settler narrative of Simon Fraser. So as a, as a faculty member, um, when I first got my faculty training orientation, there was no discussion about Simon Fraser mm-hmm. or about his problematic relationship with the Coast Salish peoples. Yeah. So I had been fortunate um, during my time at UBC um, because I did all my um, all my graduate work at UBC. Mm-hmm. And so I had been fortunate to one, one evening listen to respected elder uh, Larry Grant from Musqueam Nation share a story about Simon Fraser's interactions with Musqueam people. And it is never a story that I ever heard in my, um, in my schooling process and never saw it in our, our K-12 educational books, you know. And so, uh, so that was really the story that uh, piqued my interest and my desire to um, put forward a critical understanding that would disrupt uh, these Canadian settler narratives of place and call into question uh, this relationship that we have and, and also support um, local Coast Salish efforts uh, uh, and uh, for, for like to have their sovereignty recognized um, by the Canadian society and our government. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, it's great to hear about all of these projects. I'm sure you have so much more um, that we can talk about, but <laughs> unfortunately, we have limited time. So I was um, finally. I I want to ask you if there's any way. Um, that people listening who want to contribute is there any way that people can contribute if so where can they get more information and how what can they do thank you yes always i'm always interested in collaborating with new people or uh, developing new relationships in particular uh, for the niska project at this point we are looking for partnership or grant opportunities or donor to support us in uh, acquiring a classroom set of virtual reality masks mm-hmm. so initially when i wrote the grant uh, there's only funding for two masks, and that's enough for myself and perhaps one other uh, team member. Uh, but in order for us to create the VR films and then go back and do the empirical research on them with our community and put them in the hands of our youth, we do need a classroom set, and so that can be quite costly. So if there's any type of support out there uh, to help us acquire those, that would be wonderful. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the second is uh, just thinking about the support for the next stages of the, the film series. Uh, we're definitely interested in also partnering and creating something a little bit larger out of the film series uh, through an online platform um, to create more ac- open access opportunities around this topic. That's great to hear. And I'm guessing everyone can find information both on your um, film series and also your NISCA project on your website, which is amyparent.ca. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for for talking with me and taking the time out of your day. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview and the show overall, because this has been it for today, for this week. Tune in next week to hear a review of She Sells Seashells from me, a review of Trio of Trios from me, and a review of the Polygon Gallery's Alternative Gazes from Silvana. Also, we have some shoutouts as per usual, but that's it. I hope to not see you. Well, I hope to talk to you, I guess. It's not really a conversation either. Well, anyways, I hope you tune in next week and listen to us talk more about art. Again, this has been The Art Support. I am your host, Sarah Unju, and have a lovely day. Start living. Start listening. From features through music to news. Reflecting your views, this is CITR 101.9 FM Broadcasting Live from Vancouver, UBC. Accelerated Program. Accelerated programming since 1937.